Our friends, let's pray together. Our Lord, open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your word. Soften our hearts that we might receive that word. Transform our wills that we might do your word. And loosen our tongues that we might proclaim your word. We ask this for the glory of your Son, your living word, in whose name we pray. Amen. Our friends, I thought I'd start today by introducing you to a word that my guess is many of you will have never met before. Uh, my suspicion is that most of you don't even know what it means. Uh, some of you will, I'm sure. The word is olfactory. Olfactory. Now, I didn't say old factory. Uh, olfactory. Uh, I wonder if you know what it means. It, it basically means uh, it's a word relating to smell and it means anything related to smell, basically. And did you know that some recent studies uh, have posited that you can lump uh, all smells into 10 general categories that we human beings can detect. And here they are. The 10 categories are fragrant, woody, non-citrus fruity, sharp, chemical, minty, sweet, sickening, lemon, and this one I can't really understand, popcorn. <laughs> Anyway, the people who came up with this list uh, say that each of those smell groups, uh, th those are smells that will alert you to something in your environment. Uh, so, so chemical smells, for example, will alert you to danger. Popcorn smells tell you there's food around. <laughs> no surprise about that, I guess. Um, anyway, uh, in our passage today, Paul also talks about smells. Uh, and he thinks that the gospel has a distinctive smell. Two distinctive smells, in fact. Uh, he thinks that you can, the smell of the gospel in the world will convey different things to different people. Uh, so let's see if we can understand what he means today. So open your Bibles at 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Uh, we've got a lot to cover today, and partly that's my fault because I told Andrew it needed to be... Anyway, it is my fault. <laughs> I told him we really needed to cover the whole lot. It belonged together. Um, so, yeah, we've got a lot to cover as a result. Uh, anyway, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 starts a whole new section of the letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. I think it goes all the way through to chapter 7, verse 4. And some would say that this long section that starts here, goes to chapter 7, is the heart of his whole letter. Anyway, we're just going to concentrate on uh, the first piece of it. Uh, but I want to tell you that it is part of a, the heart of the letter of 2 Corinthians. Let's remember where we've been so far. In 2 Corinthians as a, as, a, as a whole, it appears as though the credibility of Paul's ministry is under threat amongst the Corinthians. People have been undermining him. So Paul is writing to defend himself. He's writing to defend his ministry. He's writing to say that his ministry is from God and of God. And so, in order to do that, he not only commends his own ministry, but he critiques the ministry of others. And he starts doing that in verses 14 to 17. Let's look at this. Now, a quick scan of these four verses show us that Paul has two themes in verses 14 to 17. One, one theme hangs around the idea of victory processions. The other hangs around the idea of smells. 
Okay, victory processions and smells. And Paul is basically saying that as he conducts his ministry, he is being led by God in a victory procession. And in such processions in those days, there were sweet-smelling fragrances that were offered to the gods as you went along in the victory procession. And, uh, in, uh, and in the victory procession that Paul is on, uh, there, are, um, there are also fragrances involved. He, Paul, is spreading a fragrance wherever he goes in this victory procession. The aroma can be smelled by the people who are being saved, and it can be smelled by the people who are perishing. That's what verse 15 says. To those who receive the gospel, to those who obey the gospel, the gospel is a very sweet smell indeed. A smell, a fragrance of life. But for those who refuse it, it's very different. It's a fragrance from death to death. I wonder if you can hear what Paul is saying. You see, the gospel is great news. But the greatness of the news differs according to how you receive it. Think about it. At the centre of the gospel of Jesus is the death of Jesus for all humans. If you, reflect on the, if you reject that gospel, you reject that death of Jesus being a death for you. Well, if that happens, then you know what's waiting for you? Eternal death. Judgment. So then the gospel is actually an aroma of death to you, a sign of your own eternal death that is coming to you. However, the gospel, and therefore the gospel is very bad news for you. However, at the centre of the gospel of Jesus is also the great news that Jesus rose from the dead. And if you accept the gospel, then you accept the death of Jesus for you. But you also know that because he rose to life, you will rise to life as well. So the gospel, it will be very good news for you. Um, it, it'll be the very sweet smell of life to life for you. The gospel is therefore a very serious business, isn't it? Uh, depending on how you react to it, will be the consequences for you. And that's why Paul refuses to tinker with the gospel or to profit by it. And that's what he says in verse 17. If it's so serious, he won't tinker with it. Unlike many, he won't peddle the gospel, the word of God, for profit. On the contrary, in Christ, he will speak before God with the sincerity of God's messenger commissioned by God and sent by God. He will be a messenger who preaches in the sight of God, a message of Christ. And that ends chapter 2, and that brings us to chapter 3. Now, I think that the ideas spoken about in verses 14 to 17 are taken up again in the beginning of chapter 4. However, between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 4 is this chapter, chapter 3. And chapter 3 is very important for understanding what Paul is saying. But let me tell you, it is a very difficult chapter to understand. Very difficult indeed. And to understand it, you need to understand your Old Testament. I'm an Old Testament lecturer, you see, so any chance, we'll go to the Old Testament. So let me tell you a story from the Old Testament. Uh, let me tell you, it's not just any story. It's the story of God's people, of God and his people. It's the story that starts, you might remember, in Eden. Well, it starts with Abraham, but it, uh, at the end of Genesis, beginning of Exodus, it, begin, it goes to Egypt. God's people travel to Egypt at the end of Genesis to escape famine. And it's all well for them. 
while Joseph is alive. But after Joseph dies, things get bad for them and they are enslaved by the Egyptians for 400 years. And after 400 years, God intervenes and he chooses a deliverer, a leader, Moses, and he uses Moses to deliver God's people from the tyranny of the Egyptians. And finally, they escape the Egyptians and they end up under Mount Sinai. And that brings us to Exodus 19 to 24. You see, what happens in Exodus 19 to 24 is that God gets married to his people, as it were. Well, actually, he enters into a covenant with them. And that covenant is rooted in his gracious delivery of them from Egypt. And it's shaped by his gracious word revealed in the Ten Words, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments and other laws. And it's even enacted by the shedding of blood upon God's altar. As God says, we're blood relatives, as it were. From the beginning in chapter 19 all the way through to the end of this covenant-making ceremony in chapter 24, Israel clearly and unequivocally promises that all that the Lord has said we will do. They say it in chapter 19, they say it in chapter 24. They say we're signing up to this covenant God. Now, Moses then returns up to the top of Mount Sinai to receive the formal documents from God about the covenant. And he remains there for 40 days and 40 nights. And while he's away, the people are down the bottom of the mountain and they grow, they grow restless. And they gather around Aaron, the brother of Moses, and they ask him to make them gods to replace or represent the one that Moses is talking to on the top of the mountain. Uh, golden calves are formed from trinkets that everyone throws. Uh, later on, Aaron says, oh, I just threw it into the fire and out came a calf. Right. <laughs> Not quite true. I think someone was carving it somewhere or making it. Anyway, uh, and can you see what's happening? Uh, God's delivering the commandments up the top of the mountain. They're breaking them down the bottom of the mountain at the very same time. Uh, God acts. He responds in judgment and he tells Moses he's going to wipe out all of Israel. And Moses intercedes and he calls upon God to turn from his burning anger and to relent from the disaster he's sending upon his people. And God listens to Moses and does relent. And in the aftermath of that judgment, there is an increasing dialogue between God and Moses. And the peak is reached when Moses asks God to show himself, to reveal himself to Moses. And God does, but not physically, but in words. Oh, he does reveal the back of him to himself to uh, Moses, but he reveals himself in words, which is what God usually does. He passes by Moses and he makes this declaration which goes like this. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, I think that means thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That is... His love goes for thousands of generations. His judgment will go for just three or four. Okay, so God's love is so aboundingly overwhelming. And that brings us to chapter 34, verses 8 to 32. And I want you to open your Bibles at this point at those verses. Exodus 34, 8 to 32. In 10, verses 10 to 28, a covenant between God and Israel is reenacted. And it's spelled out again. But then some rather weird events happen. 
You can look at them in your Bibles. There they are, 29 to 35. They are going to be the focus of the rest of this talk, and we've read them already, but I want us to read them again. So just follow them with me. Verse 29. When Moses came down from Sinai with the two tablets of testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he'd been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses and behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near to him. Now remember, he's got the Ten Commandments in his hand and his face is shining. Okay, And Moses called to them and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him and Moses talked with them. And afterward, all the people of Israel came near and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken to him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. And whenever Moses went in before the Lord and spoke with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he had commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that skin, of Moses, that his fa the skin on his face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with, them, with him. Okay, there's the story. Now, what do you think all that means? Well, I think Paul meditates on it. He thinks about it long and long and long. Anyway, with that background, let's go to see what he has to say. So flip over uh, to 2 Corinthians again. And as we do, let me briefly tell you what the problem appears to be for Paul and his people at Corinth. Look at the opening verses. Paul asks two rhetorical questions of the Corinthians. The original language says that Paul expects an answer no to each of the questions. So, are we beginning to commend ourselves? No. Question two. Do we need, as some, of you, as some do, letters of recommendation to or from you? Answer, no. Can you see behind these words and spot what the problem is? I think people are doubting Paul's credentials. And Paul will have nothing of it. And look at his response in verse 2. He says, the only letter he needs is the Corinthians themselves. They're a walking letter, as it were. In verse 3, he says that they are a letter delivered by him and written not in ink, but with the spirit of the living God. That is, they are God's spirit's work. God has written on them by his spirit and made them his own. They are the work of the Spirit. They're the evidence that his ministry is true. Take another look at what Paul says. You see, he goes on to talk of tablets of stone and tablets of human hearts. Now look at verse 6. Paul talks about a new covenant, and he implies there's a contrast with the old covenant. In other words, he's saying, my ministry is somewhat different from that ministry that is in Exodus 34. And then he pushes on, and in all the law. He pushes on, and I want you to notice the contrast. Paul says that the old covenant is characterised by written letters. The new covenant is characterised by the work of the Spirit. The old covenant is a covenant of letter which kills. The new covenant is a covenant of the Spirit that gives life. That probably indicates something about Paul's opponents, I think. You see, Paul's opponents support the law. And it's continuing influence over Christians. They say, to be a Christian, you really need to keep the law. Paul wants to point out that this is a new era. Not an era of written things, 
that it's not an era of where you're determined by law keeping, but no, it's, a, it's an era of the spirit. The old covenant on Mount Sinai focused on laws, not the new covenant. But there's more. What Paul seems to be saying is that where the new comes, the old has no force. So if you've got the new covenant, the covenant of the spirit through the son, you don't need law keeping. You don't need law keeping. The law no longer has a force for you who are of the spirit. Now, what was in the past mediated by Moses in the law is now fulfilled in this new ministry of the spirit about the son. Now, I wonder if you can see the problem. The problem is, what place then does the law have for us as Christians? What status does it have over our relationship with God? The problem is what authority and also what authority does Paul's ministry have? Now, with that in mind, this is the tricky part, okay? So I'm going to try and make it a bit as clear as I can. Let's turn to how Paul responds to this problem. The first thing I need to tell you is that in my view, Paul is using a whole host of scriptures from the Old Testament. And I've written them down there in your outline, so later on you can look them up. Uh, Exodus chapter 31 speaks of tablets of stone and letter. Exodus, uh, sorry, Ezekiel 11:19 speaks of a new spirit and God removing the heart of stone from his people and replacing it with a heart of flesh. Ezekiel 36 talks about hearts of stone and replacing with hearts of flesh. It also talks about God putting his spirit within his people. Then there's Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. It speaks of a new covenant that's not like the earlier covenant, this one made on Mount Sinai. Now let me see if I can explain Paul's thinking. Paul considers that back in Exodus, Israelites had stone hearts. Okay, stone hearts. That's clear from the text. In the golden calf incident that just precedes this, God explicitly declares that his people, for the first time in the Bible, that his people are stiff-necked or hard-hearted, if you like, would be another way. Later on in the Bible, they're called uncircumcised of heart. Moses agrees with God in Exodus 34, verse 9. But in the, in the later verses I referred to, we're told that, that one day there'll be a new covenant. And in the new covenant... Stiff necks and hard hearts will be done away with. Paul knows and believes this. What's more, he believes that this ministry of the gospel is the new covenant ministry. And he is a minister of it. The new covenant won't be tied, won't be tied into the hearts of stone. Stiff necks and so on that characterised Israel. No, it will be related to sensitive human hearts who show the work of the spirit in the new covenant. Now friends, please understand what is going on here. You see, the law was always designed by God to give life. That's what we see in Leviticus 18 verse 5. However, the law came to people who had hard hearts. So although it could give life if you obeyed it, people had hard hearts, so they couldn't obey it. So it didn't bring life, it brought death. Can you see what's going on? So it's the heart that makes the difference, okay? Now, Exodus 19 to 32 shows us what that is like. We see it graphically with the, with the people of God. 
while God's giving this good law that can give life, they're breaking it down the bottom of the mountain. They break God's law and because they break God's law, they die. And their death demonstrates that they can't keep law. The Old Testament witnesses to this time after time. I wonder if you've noticed as you read through the Bible that any time anything good happens or something really good and dramatic happens, within a chapter or two, the person involved sins or the group of people involved sin. Almost invariably. Think about it. Adam and Eve, they sin. Abraham, chapter 12, verse 1 to 3, given this great promise by God. The end of the chapter 12, he's running off down to Egypt, putting his wife and his children at stake. The three promises God had given are put in jeopardy. Think about Israel as they enter into the land. Do you remember their first foray into Jericho? Remember someone keeps some items they're not meant to keep and therefore judgment comes? It happens nearly every time in the Old Testament. It's as though God is saying, so you think it's possible for you humans to live rightly before me? Wrong. It won't be long before I, need, I can show you that that is indeed the, the, the case. So with that background, let's now move and have a look more closely. I have put a passage in your outlines. Could you have a look at it for, with me? Let me see if I can explain what I think. I've underlined it and so on for you. Let me see if I can explain what I think Paul is doing. In Exodus 34, we are told that after the second giving of the Ten Commandments, that the face of Moses shone because he had been talking with God. In other words, even though the Old Testament law was death-dealing, it was a good law and came with great glory. And that glory could be seen in the shining face of Moses. That's what verse 7 says. But in the succeeding verses, he makes the point that if the old covenant ministry of death, which was carved in letters of stone, was glorious, well, how much more glorious will the ministry of righteousness be? Now, in order to, need to, to understand verses 12 to 18... We need to go back to Exodus 34 and try and understand. Let me give it a try. And uh, I looked around in the office and I got some stuff that had been lying around in the office upstairs and I made a prop to help you with all of this. <laughs> so I hope you appreciate this. It's, uh, it's not, it's not every, every time I preach that I do this, but here we go, right? Now, I can even see through it, you see? That's the great thing about it. Took me a long time to find this. <laughs> And to make it out of staples. So, in order to explain, here's this prop. Now, um, verse 29, Moses comes down from the mountain with a shining face because he'd been in the presence of God receiving God's word. Aaron and the people respond to the shining of Moses' face with fear. Despite their fear, Moses talks to the people with unveiled face, telling them what the Lord had told him. When Moses finishes speaking to them, he puts the veil back over his face and starts walking about doing his normal stuff, okay? Presumably, his face then remained veiled until he would go back up the mountain again into the presence of God when he had become unveiled and the cycle would repeat itself. Does that make sense? Okay. So, can you see what's going on? Moses does not wear a veil when he's in the presence of God. He does not wear a veil when he's telling people what God says in his law. So the law is good. The presence of God is good. When he's not in the presence of God, he only wears the veil when he's not fulfilling his law as the mediator. 
when he's just moving around, not talking to people about God's word and God's law, he's got the veil over his face. Okay? Does that make sense? So the question is, why? <laughs> right? Why? Why is he wearing the veil when he's not fulfilling his role as communicating God's commandments? Well, we can't know for certain, but Paul thinks he knows. And given that he's inspired, I think we should go with what he says. Okay? So... One possible answer, this is the one that Paul suggests, is this. That is that the glory was fading underneath the veil. And that Moses was therefore hiding something by having the veil on. What was he hiding? He was hiding the fact that the glory was diminishing. It was to show that the glory of the law was temporary. Okay, does that make sense? I hope you've got it because it's very important. Very important for his argument. And Paul thinks that his opponents in Corinth have misunderstood scripture. In fact, he thinks they're still in the dark. Uh, or so he actually puts it in verse 14. The, the veil is still on for them. He says it's only removed for the Christian. That is, they are incredibly blessed. Look at verse 18. Paul says that the impact for us as believers in Jesus is that we, the new covenant people of God, have everything that the prophets looked forward to. Having understood Jesus and put our faith in him, we've been brought into the very presence of God like Moses was, and we stand there in the presence of God and with unveiled faces are beholding the glory of the Lord and being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the other. And how is that transformation possible? Well, it's not possible by keeping the law. The law itself shows that. The veil shows that. The whole of the Old Testament demonstrates that. However, what Paul is saying is that it is possible through Jesus. It is possible through Jesus. It is possible because through Jesus comes God's spirit who works in us to produce the likeness of the Lord Jesus, not by our law keeping, but by the work of the spirit within us. This comes from the Lord, says Paul, who is the spirit. Friends, let's get to the heart of Paul's reflection. The heart is that Jesus changes everything. Jesus changes everything. He is the fulfilment of God's purposes. The gospel proclaims this, and we must never, never, never cave into alternative views. We must be people for whom the gospel is central because only if we hear the message of the gospel and receive it do we receive Christ. But, friends, for Paul, the center of the gospel is not a set of words or formulas. Everything that Jesus has done, all that he is, is what is important. And if we understand this, we'll find ourselves before him with unveiled faces, beholding, um, sorry, we'll find ourselves before him with unveiled faces, soaking in his image and being transformed from one degree of glory to the other. That's the difference Jesus makes on the Old Testament. He transforms everything. He changes everything. And so him and what he's accomplished must be the centre of everything we do. And that's our job, to make sure that Jesus never slips from the centre, never stops being proclaimed as the centre of our faith. Beside him, 
Even the great glory of the first covenant just pales into insignificance. Let's never let this go. Paul's given us a great example, hasn't he, of God's gospel-centeredness and Christ-centeredness. Before I go on, I just wonder if I could speak uh, to your pastors for a moment. So the rest of you, well, you can listen in if you like. Okay, but let me speak to your pastors. If you're a pastor and a teacher of God's people, then God has appointed you a custodian, as Paul was, of the glorious gospel message of his son. And that is your charge. You fight for it, you stand your ground on it, and you convey it to all sundry, and you stop anyone who's got an alternative view from having access to the people of God. And if you see your pastor's not doing that, you tell them. Okay? Second, let's return to all of us. Friends, I have taken you today through a very difficult passage. I put it there on one of the most difficult in the New Testament, so I don't know how I scored it, but anyway. uh, I hope I've helped you to see what's happening at its core. Let me close by considering what we can learn as people of the New Covenant first. What What can we learn from Paul about the value of the Old Testament? Well... We learn that the Old Testament is not just a source of illustrations and stories. It's a source of great theology. And that theology has has to take the whole in mind. It needs to be read in the light of the whole. Friends, how many of you neglect your Old Testaments in your Bible reading? How many of you don't read your Old Testaments? If you don't read your Old Testament, you simply will not understand Jesus properly. Let me tell you that. Because he said when he came into the world, you want to understand me, you read your Old Testament. Okay, you want to understand me, read your Old Testament. To understand what God is doing in his world and how to live in his world, you need to read your Old Testament. It bears witness to Jesus. It helps us know and understand the Father and the Holy Spirit. And it helps us know and understand Jesus. Okay, next thing. We learn in this passage how to read and interpret the Old Testament, don't we? Paul shows us here that the Old Testament needs to be read in the light of what has happened in Jesus Christ. It is considering every passage in the light of what God has done and is doing through his son. Paul has taught us how to read and interpret the Old Testament. It's to be interpreted with insight, knowledge and reflection, but it is to be interpreted with Christ-centeredness and gospel-centeredness. We don't read Christ into scripture, let me say. No, we see how it witnesses to Jesus. In the words of Paul to Timothy, we read the Old Testament to scriptures to see how they make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. But that's not all. If we interpret them rightly, we read those Old Testament scriptures so that they will teach, reprove, correct and train us in righteousness. And that's what Paul's been doing here, isn't it? He has taken scripture, he's soaked it in, he's applied it to doctrine, ethics and equipping the saints for good works. But I want you to notice one more thing. Did you notice that Paul thinks that the gospel is glorious, doesn't he? He's overwhelmed by it. He thinks, you think, you think the Old Testament was glorious with everything that it said. Let me tell you, Jesus has a glory that supersedes all. Uh, the gospel bears the message about Jesus. It gives us access to the spirit It enables us to be transformed. Through the gospel, the hopes of all God's people in all history are realised. Through the gospel, we're brought to Jesus and the veil is removed 
And all of a sudden we're with Moses and even grander. We're in the presence of God with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord and being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. But there's even more. Friends, the risk for us as evangelical Christians, Bible-believing Christians, is that we forget the power of the Spirit. I find it, and I bet you find it as well. Friends, we are saved by the work of Jesus. Through that work, though, we are given the Spirit. Transformation into the likeness of Christ comes through the work of the Spirit. In Christ, we are freed from the law. That doesn't mean we can do what we like. No. We are brought under the influence of the Spirit who transforms us into the likeness of Christ, which is a righteousness far greater than the law conveys. That Spirit, He will incline our hearts to Jesus. He will move us toward godliness. He will enable us to live rightly. It's this Holy Spirit who will transform us into the same image from one glory to the other. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for Jesus himself. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that that makes us into the likeness of your Son. Father, we pray that you would continue to fill us with your Spirit, that we might look more like Jesus each day. And Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.